want to begin this morning by quoting Jesus in a very somber um, statement that he makes. And so if you just want to listen uh, to these words from Jesus. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. End of quotation. May I say that it's at least a little awkward that pop culture equates greatest of all time with goats. Can can I just bring that up? Just Just a little bit strange that the goat is the greatest of all time. I bring this up because today we are going to talk about the greatest of all time. Not on the field, not on the court, but in the court, before the court of God. Who are the greatest ones in the kingdom of heaven? Not the goats. Who are they though? Well, to answer the question, who are the greatest ones in the ultimate sense? Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a seminar on it. Okay? He gives a seminar on it. That's the question. People, his disciples were going to read, who are the greatest ones? Let's go ahead and do it now. Let's go ahead and read the opening verse. They want to know who the goat is. Not really. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. This is Matthew 18, 1, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the greatest place? Who's the ultimate greatest one? The disciples want to know that. And so what Jesus does in response throughout the rest of the chapter is what I'm going to call a seminar. He's going to give them a seminar on proper view of self as a sinner, proper view of other sinners, proper view of living in a sinful world. The whole chapter is about sin. Chapter 18 is. We won't get done with the the whole sin seminar today. Uh, We're going to continue next week because we won't have time to get the whole chapter done. But it's super helpful, super helpful when it comes to how do we view ourselves? How do we view others who also are sinful? How do we view the world around us as a sinful world if we're Christians, if we belong to Christ? And so beginning with our view of self in this, again, sin seminar, if you will, uh, let's go ahead and look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, Jesus calls to himself a child, He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So somebody feels kind of awkward right now for asking a question. Okay, we could guess who it might be, but we probably shouldn't guess. Who's the greatest on the greatest stage in the greatest place? And Jesus' response is to call a small child to himself 
Remember, Jesus uh, addresses the disciples sometimes in private. We've moved, they're not in private any longer, even based upon the verses we've read beforehand. So oftentimes in public, oftentimes before many, 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 remember feeding of the thousands of people. So there's a, there's a group of people here. He calls a small child to himself. And here's how he answers the question, which is to not really answer the question, which is to answer the question, unless you turn, unless you change, unless you, some have translated it, unless you are converted, but probably unless you have a total change in thinking about how you think about how to get to the kingdom of heaven regarding greatness of the kingdom of heaven, unless you have a fundamental, essential change in the way you think and become like this small child, you won't even go to heaven, the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's quite a response. It's an amazing response. It's a provocative response. What's he getting at? What, what, what is, whatever he's getting at is really important to say, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? Unless you have this kind of change, you'll never get there? Think with me if you would. What's, what's true of small children? Lots of things, right? Lots of things are true of small children. The list could go on and on and on. But he's going to move on in just a little while and he'll equate small children with with humility. Not as in a virtue, but as in maybe a way that people used to talk and they would say, so-and-so comes from humble means. It's not a compliment. It means they, 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 they don't come from wealth. They don't have much to offer. They come from humble means. Children... Don't go to war to protect a culture. Children don't pay the bills if they're small children. Uh, Children can't protect the home if they're small children. Children are, according to the IRS in the 21st century, what? They're dependents is what they are. They're, they're, They're dependents. They're consumers. They're dependents if we think of small children. Never once, uh, I've had three, I've had five three-year-olds um, in my lifetime and never once have I gone to one of our children when they're three and said, all right, you know, mortgages do. Um, what you got? It's never, ever happened. And it's kind of a ridiculous point, right? Children don't contribute. Small children don't contribute. Okay? They need someone to provide for them. They need someone to meet the need or obligation for them. Surely that's the idea that Jesus has in mind here. Who's going to be the greatest? You know, let's look at our accomplishments and what we're doing and what we're going to do. Jesus, would you just, would you just rate us and tell us who the greatest one's going to be? Well, it's time for a, a little education and view of Christian self. We need to go back to the basics. Unless you have a total different kind of thinking and you think in terms of being a small child, you won't even make it. Because we don't make it on our own. I keep taking you back to the opening theme verse, name him Jesus, chapter 1, verse 21, because, and you can finish my sentence, I know, I know, I know, because he will save his people from their sins. He, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. They don't save themselves. And if you don't save yourself, and that's how you get into the kingdom of heaven, thinking about who the greatest one's going to be, You didn't get there based upon your own merits. You didn't get there based upon your own ingenuity, wisdom, power, might, or anything. So unless you have a rethinking, you you won't even get there. 
we won't even get there. So it's really helpful what Jesus says here. It puts us in our place, but it is really, really, really helpful. It's easy for me as a preacher to apply this and say, have you become like a child and had a a radical, fundamental, essential change in thinking about how to get to the kingdom of heaven? You need to. You certainly need to. It is to conclude that I, I can do it on my own. I do love the song that Christians have been singing for quite a number of years now, Rock of Ages, because if any song has really good theology that complements this, Rock of Ages does. I'll just quote some of the lines. Nothing in my hand I bring. Told you. I only had to quote one line, right? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, again, great line. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. My next note to myself is prideful Christians? Question mark. In light of our opening verses, prideful Christians? Who's going to be the greatest Lord? Um, you don't get it. You don't get it. If you got it, you wouldn't be asking the question. To mix metaphors, and I know we're not supposed to, but it's a great classic Christian quote. Christians are like beggars showing other beggars where to find bread, said Martin Luther. It's a good metaphor. It's not that we've got to figure it out, but wait till you see what I found. Right? I'm going to show you bread. Comes from not me, comes from someone else. Okay, let's move on. And it doesn't get less provocative, it just gets more interesting. In verse 4 it says, Whoever humbles himself, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, think, think through the logic. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. So who's the greatest? Well, unless you have a total different way of thinking, you won't even get in. And how do you get in? You get in based upon the merits of another, based upon the work of another. But if you become like a child and you see that, you're the greatest. So that makes who the greatest in heaven? Some of you pointed up, it's the Lord. Okay, you're getting way ahead of me, okay? (laughs) You would be right, but let's save that, right? In this sense, what he's getting at is, you'll all be the greatest. I think that's what he's getting at here. If you become like the child, you'll be the greatest. But the only way to get in is to to become like a child. So apparently, we're all going to be the greatest. Apparently, there's going to be equality amongst believers in heaven. I would take it. We'll talk about the God thing later. Don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong. That's good. If it helps, when you trust in Jesus, the Bible teaches you're united to Christ. Okay? Again and again and again and again and again. Not only Jesus, but the, the apostles who would come after him. We'll talk about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's, it's united to Christ. It's the great Christian doctrine of, of union with Christ. When you trust in Christ, you believe in Christ, you're united to him by faith. 
That means you receive Christ and all of his benefits. So you have forgiveness, you have reconciliation, you have not only forgiveness in the negative, no more guilt, you also have the positive crediting of Christ's perfect obedience. Christ and all of his benefits. Everyone in heaven is positionally perfect because we're united to Christ, even though we're sinners. Well, if that's true of me and that's true of you, there aren't any greater people in heaven as far as human beings are concerned. There aren't any, aren't any lesser people in heaven as far as human beings are concerned. Now, before we move on, I, I just want to say one controversial thing, which is not true. I want to say lots of controversial things, but one, one thing just to note before we move on to, ver, to verse 5 is the first four verses are commonly used. They were used in my upbringing to teach me um, uh, to, to be a proof text for baby baptism. Okay? And if you believe in baby baptisms, we can be friends. I talked to at least three really close friends this week who believe in baby baptism. Okay? So I'm not just making it up like a politician, like, oh, I have a friend like that. I really truly do. So I'm not trying to be insulting. But I am trying to suggest to you, um, I, I didn't, can we all agree that he hasn't said anything about baptism? I, I, I don't think he said anything about baptism. It's a child old enough to stand before him. Um, there hasn't been any water last I checked. Um, and he's using it as an image, unless you become like. He's talking, he's talking to adults needing to become like ch- children. So if you would like to have better arguments for baby baptism, if you buy me lunch, I'll give you better arguments, even though I don't hold to them myself. <laughs> okay. I'm not trying to pick a fight, but if you want to strengthen your argument... Don't use this. It's not the best argument. Use a different argument. And again, if I've offended you, that wasn't my intention. But it's a stretch. I think we can all agree we haven't seen Christian baptism yet. If we can't all agree, let's talk later. Okay? I, I had to say it because it's so common. So common. Okay, let's move on. Now, now he shifts views. So we have a self-view for Christians, how we're going to view ourselves Um, But now he's going to talk about how we view other believers and how we treat other believers. And this is really important. And so he says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child, I think he's still using the metaphor to to talk about believers because that would fit the pattern. So those who are childlike, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Help me understand the simplicity of what he's getting at. Whoever receives one of these, whoever receives, or to receive someone is to welcome them, it's to accept them as, as a guest. Whoever receives one of these in my name, it's as if they re, they've received me. Well, I'm a Christian, so I name the name of Christ. It's in my title. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, okay? I'm one who belongs to Christ. If you're a Christian, you too are one who belongs to Christ. So if I welcome you because you're a Christian, I'm welcoming you in the name of Christ. Okay, that's what's going on here. And Jesus says, if you do that, you've welcomed me. This is what pleases me. And again, it goes back to Christians are those who are united to Christ by faith. Okay, he's our savior. He represents us. So... If I receive you in the name of Christ, 
pleases Christ. You receive me in the name of Christ, pleases Christ. It's another way of saying something Jesus and the apostles say a lot. They say a lot of times we should what one another. We should love one another. He says it a lot. Now, in the Bible, we're supposed to love other human beings. That's true. But there's a unique, let's tighten the circle, a unique kind of love that believers have for other believers. He's surely talking about that. We're not going to look up other texts, but similar to John chapter 13, similar to 1 John, one of the signs of a true believer is they love other Christians. And I think he's essentially teaching the same thing. I like it that he's saying it the way he's saying it, though, because he says, whoever receives... It seems to be, uh, it, it's, it's another way of saying it, but it, it, it has to do with actions. So it's one thing for me to say I love other Christians. It's another thing for me to act like I love other Christians. I'm, I'm actually welcoming. I'm actually embracing. And so this is teaching us not only to view ourselves the right way as Christians. We don't get in because of us. It's to view, now we're on this level, I should view you differently. If you say you're a Christian, I should receive you in the name of Christ. Love you in the name of Christ. Pretty straightforward. Not so easy to do. Easy easy for me to apply though, because I can say to you, if you're a Christian, is it true that you receive others in the name of Christ? I hope it is. I hope it is. Easy to say, hard to do. I'll ask you, maybe to make it a little harder but a more, uh, more easy, easy to understand. How, how, do you, how do you speak of other Christians? Remember from the, from the mouth, the heart speaks. It's easy for me to say I love other Christians, but you should hear how I talk about them. Maybe to make it easier, but maybe harder, because it's easy for me to talk about those Christians out there that I love that I don't have to interact with. Do you receive other Christians who are fellow members of Omaha Bible Church? How do, you, how do you speak of them? Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You should know today that Jesus says, if you receive them in my name, you receive me. You should know that if we turn it into the negative, it's not a good look. It's not a good look at all. Christians are supposed to love other Christians. It's one of the signs of being a Christian. And again, it's easy for me to to see myself as I'm not perfect and I get in like a child. I don't contribute anything. It's harder for me to look at you and think, because you're imperfect just like me. I love you because you don't get in because you're perfect. You get in because of the perfection of another so I can love you. That's harder for me to do, but I know it's right. I know that it's right. One of the ways Jesus taught elsewhere that you can know somebody's a Christian is they have a love for other Christians. Can people know that you're a Christian? How do you talk about other Christians? And then he, he, he moves to the negative. And if you think I've been negative so far, that's all positive, folks. But it be, he turns it to a negative, but I'm even going to point out the positive and the negative. You see, you, you wait and see. Verse 6 says, But whoever causes one of these little ones... I think he's still carrying the metaphor over, describing believers. Whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
I mean, that, that, how about the gravity of that? You know, pun intended. It would be better if you cause a believer to sin, Jesus says, it would be better for that person if they would be executed by drowning. Oh boy. Why would Jesus say that? And I want you to think positively with me. Any of these little ones, believers, who believe in me, he said it there, didn't he? Who believe in me. We believe in him for salvation. We believe in him so that we can have eternal life. Any of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if they were executed by drowning. Why would he say that? Because he loves his own. There's a generic kind of love of God, but this is not that. He loves his own uniquely and specially, right? Let's put it in these terms. If you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and he gave himself up for you. You belong to him and you've received his work on your behalf by faith. You're unique, belonging to him. And Jesus cares so much that he doesn't just turn a blind eye to people hurting you. He cares. And he says, I care so much about you because you belong to me. It would be better if those people were executed by a horrific death. And I realize that sounds negative, but it's actually not negative. He cares so much about believers that he wants to protect them. And that, that, that's meant to bring some encouragement. That's a positive. But let it be known today to all unbelievers who do things that cause believers to sin, there's a day of reckoning coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. We, we, we should know that clearly. And God doesn't turn a blind eye when unbelievers cause believers to sin. It's going to be bad. It ends badly. That's also meant to be an encouragement to believers, though not to unbelievers. I guess we didn't talk about what sin is. Most of you know. But First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So, so what God requires is law. What is contrary to what God requires is lawlessness. It's sin. It's a violation of what God requires. Love God, love neighbor, if we want to sum it up. It's, it's when we try to get people to do things that God forbids. It's when we try to keep people from doing things that God commands. So if someone tries to get believers to not do the right thing or to keep them or keep them from doing the right thing or push them to doing the wrong thing, it's bad. This is a chapter. This is a seminar on sin and living in a sinful world. Jesus cares for his own so much that he says that. By way of application, I could say, believers... Don't do things to cause other believers to sin. That's terrible. But I said it that way on purpose because you're not ever going to face the condemning kind of judgment that he describes here. He saves his people from their sins. And it would be a sin to cause another person to sin. That's why we actually are finding rest in him because he's not going to hold our sins against us. Romans chapter 8 will teach by an apostle of Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I'm going to be careful how I apply it. Unbelievers, hell to pay for causing believers to sin. Believers, 
why in the world would you want to act like an unbeliever? It doesn't make any sense. It's heinous. It's crazy. It's insane. It's perverse. I wouldn't say there'll be hell to pay. Because you're in Christ. There is a difference. There is a difference. Still bad, still awful. I wouldn't want to do it. It's unthinkable. But in applying it, I'm not going to close, uh, turn my mind off and pretend like I didn't read Matthew 1 to 28 or pretend like I didn't read Genesis 1 to Revelation at the very end. I'm going to think about it and apply it in light of the whole. Okay, view of self, view of other believers. They're cherished. They're to be cared for. Now a view of the world in general. How about verse 7? Woe, another statement of judgment or condemnation. Wrath, Jesus says, woe to the world. And world is used a lot of different ways in the Bible. It would seem here in light of sin, the the world in the bad sense, the broken sense, the the anti-God sense. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Then there's something peculiar in verse 7. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. What is he saying? What is he getting at? It's necessary. Well, I think, I think necessary in the sense of this is a sinful world. It's a sin broken world, a sin cursed world. And guess what's going to keep happening until Christ returns and makes all wrongs right? Sin is what's going to keep happening. Until that day comes, the whole creation, Romans 8 says, is groaning, longing, waiting. But until it comes, it's quote unquote necessary. Okay? going to keep happening. And Jesus says, woe to the one who leads in the temptation. So you have to get from typically point A to point B, there's temptation in the middle. And Jesus pronounces a woe of condemnation for the tempters, okay? For the tempters. I also, again, this sounds super negative, woe, wrath, judgment. But as someone who belongs to Christ, I take solace and comfort and encouragement. I'm thankful that he's for his own. And so he's against those who hurt his own. I think this is a good look, actually. In a world, a broken world that spends billions upon billions of dollars in marketing trying to get people to sin, take some encouragement and know that there will be a day of reckoning. I'm accountable. I'm responsible. I'm not saying, therefore, I don't have to do anything about it. But one day, there's going to be a different kind of accounting. There's going to be justice. Okay? God's not turning a blind eye to all of the things that we struggle with. Our, the view of the world in general is pretty negative here, and we can at least step back and see, you know what? Jesus isn't just letting it all go. Not too long ago, I talked to a, a young adult who was really struggling with um, the Christian worldview. And one of the big problems that they were having is there are so many bad things that happen in the world. And I think we can all agree there are a lot of bad things that happen in the world. Absolutely. And, and this person expressed specific bad things. And so my response, it was a long conversation. My response is, so then how, how what's your answer and solution? Well, it was essentially, I, I, I don't have one other than they, they, they're gonna, we, they should be killed for doing these horrific, heinous, bad things to other people. And I agreed. 
But everybody dies. The most horrific, heinous acting people you can imagine die. And the sweetest, kindest, most generous person you've ever met dies. The Christian worldview says there's more to it. Actually, it's, it's, I was thankful for the conversation and the objection. The Christian worldview actually answers, answers it. Jesus is not saying, oh, it's, you know, it's just how it's going to be. Woe to the world for doing things that are hurtful, in particular, that are hurtful toward believers. So let's think about these things. They're actually helpful and encouraging. I'm, I'm thankful for those kinds of um, questions. I'm really thankful for those kinds of questions. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Okay, now, now our view of our own sin. How's the sin seminar going for us so far? I didn't advertise it because I didn't think anybody would come to a sin seminar. Um, but it's, it's actually quite important for us. We're, we're, not, we're not living in denial. We're living in reality of the world we live in. So now he's going to talk about sin in one's own life. View of one's own sin. Verses 8 and 9 tell us these things. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Any, does anyone remember where we've heard that before? We, we, we've heard it from Jesus before, essentially. We heard it in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5. This isn't the first time we've heard it. What's he intending here? If you had to explain this to someone, if, you have, if your friend says, I read this in the Bible the other day, what in the world does this mean? What, what would you say? Well, again, if we're reading Matthew, bigger picture... We wouldn't say that as long as you get rid of your eyes, you won't sin with your mind anymore. If you get rid of your hands, you won't actually act. If you get rid of your feet, you wouldn't conclude that because we've already learned in chapter 12 and in chapter 15 that actually the cause would not be our external appendages. The cause would be what? Yeah, the, the cause would be the heart. It's, what, it's what's on the inside and it manifests itself outwardly. So that's actually the problem. The external is not the problem. I'll never forget the horrific, terrible experience and image I've shared a million times probably when my wife and I were having a sweet stroll in Southern California along a beach and there was a, 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 the most grotesque, perverse human being I've ever personally encountered who had no legs and no arms and he wouldn't stop following us around saying the most perverse things to my wife and to myself that I've ever heard. And I would suggest to you that if he had no eyes, it wouldn't have helped. And if his tongue were cut out, it wouldn't have helped, even though we couldn't have understood him as well. The problem is actually here. The problem is here. So, so what's Jesus getting at? I think we would be in good company if we concluded he's getting at sin is terrible. Sin, sin is awful. Sin, sin, is, sin is your worst enemy. Sin is your biggest problem. It's not something else. It's horrific, 
right? The wages of sin is death. This is, this is, this is destructive to your relationship with God. It's destructive in your own life. It's destructive in other relationships. It's destructive to the world at large. It's destructive to the culture. Sin is awful. So in principle, then at least, do anything and everything you could ever possibly do to get rid of sin. And I say in principle, at least, because even if you're talking to unbelievers and you tell them this, which I would tell them in a certain way, as long as I could explain what I mean, if they stopped then and there, they would still go to hell. Because what about all that guilt that they've amassed? It's not going to help them. Maybe hell won't be as bad. And if I say this to believers, do this because otherwise, in effect, he says, otherwise there's hell to pay. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no condemnation. He came to save his people from their sins. I know how the story ends. There's atonement through substitution. So, so what do we make of this? I would say, again, in principle, he's making a profound point. Sin is terrible. Sin is awful. Sin is destructive. Sin is the worst thing of all. And do anything and everything you could possibly do to not have sin. But you do. So you'd better become as a small child who can't do it on your own of humble means and look to someone as your substitute or you're smoked. I'd go there. I'd for sure go there. And then where else I would go is, and if that's true of you already and you belong to Christ and you are a legitimate, genuine disciple of Christ, you're trusting in Christ, it's also really important for you to learn that sin is destructive and sin is bad and sin is awful. It won't condemn your soul to hell because you have a Savior, but it doesn't make it any less terrible and awful. And you should be against sin and you should fight sin with God's help from a status of being in Christ. I would apply it that way too. See, what I'm trying to do is not be a perfect preacher, but I'm trying to, to, to interpret the Bible in context because I know how Matthew 1 starts and I know how 28 ends and I know everything in between and I'm trying to be a good friend to you and saying don't turn your brain off when you read isolated texts. One more thing before we move on. I have a couple of books here and I always get nervous when preachers bring books other than the Bible into the pulpit. It's just a personal hang-up, I guess. I've, I've seen too many crazy things. Um, but these are just to illustrate a point. Um, I have two books here from uh, the multi-volume set of John Owen. I have volume one and volume six. John Owen was a 17th century preacher from England, one of my favorites. He's one of the hardest to read. Um, don't go out and buy the set unless you want it to look really good on your shelf. I not only have hardback, but I have leather bound. So I just want you to know that I'm really spiritual. Not really. They were a gift. So John Owen is probably most... Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me digress a little bit more. Um, Owen, Owen was... If you go to England, by the way, if you, if you go to England someday when we get to travel again... Um, <laughs> Go to where Owen is buried. Go to the cemetery, uh, Bunhill Field Cemetery, I believe it is. It's been a long time. It's a nonconformist cemetery. The nonconformists were those who said, we don't think it's right for the royalty to be above the church. We don't think it's right for the church to be headed by the king and or the queen. 
It's not biblical. It's not right. And so eventually they're ejected. They're the nonconformists. Another nonconformist uh, person whose name you know, even if you don't know he was a nonconformist, would be John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous Christian books ever of all time. And they're buried in the same cemetery, so it's a twofer, okay? So you should go. Um, you should go check it out. It's actually an interesting place to go. Bunyan and Owen were friends. I think Owen said something like he would give all the money in the world if he could preach like Bunyan uh, because he had such a way with words. It's probably also true that Owen was behind the funding uh, to Pilgrim's Progress because Owen comes from money. Bunyan doesn't. Bunyan was a tinkerer. He was a fix-it man. But I'm telling you more than you wanted to know, but I'm a fan of both of these saints, so for, for what it's worth. Here's the thing. Here, here's why I did the long story. Owen is most known by Christian people, generally speaking, for this volume or a version of it, Temptation and Sin. It's volume six. Or what's called the mortification of sin. That we should kill sin, that we should fight sin. And he would consult texts like we've looked at. Okay? Sin is terrible. Sin is awful. It should be mortified which is a good and true and right thing, I say hats off to John Owen for it, without any question. But commonly what happens is people go here first and emphasize this, and I just want you to know, I went to public school, I'm not really smart, but I'm pretty good at math. This is volume six, okay? The glory of Christ is volume one, okay? So do you see what I just did there? (laughs) The glory of Christ is volume one. And the last time I checked, right? Volume one comes before volume six. Okay? One comes before six. It's it's important that we know Owen was a champion for defending the substitutionary, perfect, effectual, atoning work of Jesus Christ for sinners. And Owen was known with a strong reputation for defending and promoting Christ's absolute perfect adherence to the law of God, credited to the sinner by faith so that we can be justified freely according to his grace. And he took a lot of heat for it. So John Owen, I know, I know that I know that I know, would want you to know that there's a chapter one. You follow me? Am I going too fast? (laughs) Before there's a chapter six. And I've done my best to use it as a prop to help you remember when you read texts like our text, true and right and important, but don't lose your ever-loving Christian mind in approaching it and applying it. We should fight sin from a stance of being in Christ. We've come as children by faith. And now out of gratitude unto him, out of a safe place, no condemnation, we definitely, absolutely need to and do fight sin. I hope that helps. I hope you remember the text and not just the illustration. Let's move on to a view of other believers again, and we'll get wrapped up here shortly. Verse 10 says, I, well, 10 is fascinating, okay? You, you'll, you need to have your brain turned on for 10, but it's, it's a good one. You'll like it. Verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
Okay, if you're a Christian, make sure you don't despise another Christian. For I tell you that in heaven, here's his argument, here's his logic. It's heavenly logic. I tell you that in heaven, their angels, T-H-E-I-R, their angels, the angels that belong to the little ones, the angels that belong to believers. The Bible doesn't give us a lot. It gives us a little bit more like in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. It doesn't give us a lot about guardian angels. And if you go to the local gift shop or trinket store, you'll be even more confused. It's a bit of a mystery, but it does give us real traction in real verses. Their angels assigned to them to protect them and for their welfare, for their good. I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What, what, is, what does that mean? Okay, in heaven, their angels, believers' angels... Believers, angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I think this is what it's getting at, what Jesus is getting at. Angels in heaven before the face of God. You think they're holy angels or unholy angels? Of course they're holy angels. God, before His face, intimacy, friendship, closeness. They're there in God's very unique presence. So those are holy angels. Whatever it is they do, they do the right thing. Because if they did the wrong thing, even in the slightest inkling, they wouldn't be before the face of God, seeing the face of God. They're there, and if they're there, they're there because they're holy angels. They do the right thing. And He's using that as an argument. They're angels before the very face of God. So if you are supposed to learn from those holy angels, what would you learn? You would learn that you shouldn't despise one of those little ones. Those angels are for the people of God. The people of God aren't perfect. The people of God are sinful, but they're united to Christ. And so the angels are for them and God is pleased with it so much so they can stay in God's presence. We learn from that. I know that you're sinful. You know that I'm sinful, but I'm united to Christ. Our angels are for us. So why in the world wouldn't we as fellow believers be for one another? It only makes sense. It only makes sense. Then Jesus says, what do you think? Inviting us to think logically. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Implied answer would be yes, of course. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. We don't have to guess. Verse 14 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Oh. Again, not the angel illustration now, but similar to it, when we talk about God, God, this is Ezekiel 30. For, I think, esque. It's a great text, by the way. Not time to go there. But, but God, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, and loves His own sheep uniquely, will stop at nothing to go and get one that goes astray. That's God's perspective on His own sheep. And we as believers say, yes. 
This is the God who is for Pat. This is Pat's God. This is wonderful. This causes me encouragement. I'm so happy that God cares for Pat so much that he's my shepherd and he would never let me go astray and stay astray. That's how much God loves Pat. Ah, I love the God who loves Pat. Now I'm saying it that way on purpose because it's coming to us in a context. As we think about other believers, how do angels think about other believers? We're happy when they think positively about us, but other people too who are believers. And if I'm a sheep based upon the merits of Christ, and you're a sheep based upon the merits of Christ, God would go after you just as he would go after me. So you too can love this God? Yes, please do. But also it affects the way we see each other. Fellow sheep, fellow Christians, fellow belongers to Christ. God is for both of us. So why in the world would I be a jerk toward you, to put it in our terms? Why would I speak evil of you? Well, because I know you're evil. Well, that's true. And I know I'm evil too. We're Christians. We're in Christ. New creations in Christ. Second Corinthians 5 changes things. It really should change things. It does change things. It's radical. I have one final question before we eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. By the way, when we eat and drink in remembrance of Christ, we're remembering chapter 1 comes before chapter 6. Right? Do this in remembrance of me. Our tendency is to put chapter 6 in front of chapter, or volume 6 in front of volume 1. Do this in remembrance of me. I love it that the Lord says, do this until I come. Keep doing this in remembrance of me. Because we start to drift in thinking, I've got to do this and I do this and God will eventually accept me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we're motivated to do the right thing. But here's my last question. Who is the greatest? Back to, back to verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think we learned that the one who becomes like a child. But let's do Captain Obvious for a second. Captain Obvious is, who's the greatest in the kingdom, hint, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The king, (laughs) right? The king is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Christ is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to him. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And so to do that little Captain Obvious moment would be for us to say, ah, and the reason we're there is because he got us there. Because he came here to save his people from their sins. And so we live for his glory and for his honor. It's actually all about him, but we're united to him by faith. And so we see one another the right way and things are good. Things are really good. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great time in your word. I confess that I don't understand it the way I want to, but I'm also spiritually thrilled to be able to know that you're patient with us and that we're learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. And thank you for the fact that we can, as the psalmist says, cease striving and know that you are God. 
And in light of that, we know that ultimately we cease striving and we rest in Christ, the revelation of yourself. As we eat and drink, may we do so in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.